good to see you all once again. This past Thursday, I had an endoscopy on my throat, and they uh, had to clear out the esophageal webbings. I call it stretching my throat. So my throat is sore today, but I have my chloroseptic with me, and I'm just going to push for as long as I can, and if I rasp out and... uh, it turns out to be a shorter than usual Sunday morning, then you're all just lucky. So, but hopefully my voice will hold out. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. At this point in Paul's epistle, remember that this is an epistle. It is a letter. And so Paul is thinking logically through the questions that have been asked him. And so there is a connection to what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks and the fact that the Corinthian church was not looking after one another. And that was especially evident in the way that they were taking the Lord's Supper. 
that some were drunk and some were full and others were starving and that they weren't truly waiting on one another. When Paul uses that word, wait on one another, he's not saying wait around until the others get here. He's using the word the way we would use the word waiter. If you go to a restaurant, somebody brings you your food, they are waiting on you. And so he says, wait on one another, whether you're well-to-do, whether you're impoverished, that you should take care of one another and in that way show your Christian love for one another and in that way your Lord's Supper can actually be a blessed event instead of being an event that Paul would have to say, I don't praise you in this. In fact, he had to castigate them for the way they were doing it. And directly from there, he starts talking about the spiritual gifts. And you will notice as he continues talking about them, and we may get to it, may not this morning, that he says all of this about the spiritual gifts within the context of act like a church, act like you care about each other. And his explanation of the spiritual gifts is going to be that the gifts exist for the good of the whole body. They don't exist for the good of the person exercising the gift. They don't exist so that the person exercising the gift can show off or exercise his ego or say, look at me, I'm more spiritual than you because I have this particular gift. Paul is going to say that Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in these gifts, even though I called them spiritual gifts, even though we think of them as gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are actually gifts of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the purpose for these gifts is so that the body is built up and that the body is edified. Anytime that you see any of these gifts being exercised in a way that exalts the person doing it, then you recognize that they're not treating these gifts the way Paul intends for them to be treated. Because even the name that he assigns to these gifts show you that they are gifts from God, graces from God, and not any part of the individual himself. Let's start here. Are you familiar with this word? In English letters, this is the Greek word charis. What is the translation of the word charis? Grace. It's the common word for grace. Come on, it's on our sign. Come on, you're in Grace Christian Assembly. I stand up here and say, grace, 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 grace. If you know any Greek word, you should know charis. Now, if we put an M-A on the end of it, it becomes charisma, which moved its way right into the English language. When we talk about people who have a lot of personality, who are attractive, we might say, that person has a lot of charisma. What it really means is, the MA on the end of it means that it's of this. And so it's of grace. Now, any time that something is truly of grace, since the definition of grace is unmerited favor, something you can't earn, something you can't obligate God to give you. And since it's not anything that the human being has control of, otherwise it's not grace, it's a debt paid by God. Because it's truly, genuinely grace, then it cannot be for the ego of the individual. It has to be something that God does simply because God is gracious. Now, if we put the TA on the end of it, that pluralizes it. And now we're talking about the charismata. And that is the exact word that Paul uses, but we simply don't have a good English word to translate the charismata. Because what it really means is gifts given by God's grace. And again, if they are gifts given by God's grace, they cannot be for the ego of the individual. Because the individual didn't cause it, God caused it. Now this word, charismata, 
is indeed where the word charismatic comes from, because if a person exercises these gifts, they are known as the charismatic. They are the one exercising the charismata. And that word charismatic has carried over into all of the like word of faith congregations or the Pentecostal congregations who say that their Christianity is defined by the fact that they exercise the charismata. But if, in fact, these are graces from God, which is exactly what the word means, then your Christianity cannot be defined by the necessary exercise of any of the charismata because the charismata are a work of grace. And so God has to do it. Now, 10 years ago, and it is almost exactly 10 years ago, we were in the book of Acts teaching our way through the book verse by verse, and we reached the point where we were talking about Pentecost. And because Pentecost includes the infilling of the Holy Spirit and then speaking in tongues, or at very least the miracle of people hearing in their own dialect. Dialect, by the way, is another word that just came into the English language straight from the Greek. Dialectos was the word. And so because they all heard in their own dialect, in their own language, there was a miracle that happened on the day of Pentecost that included speaking in tongues, hearing in their own language, and extolling the marvelous works of God. That was the purpose for which the tongues were given. So that regardless of what language people spoke, they could understand what Peter was saying on Pentecost and what the disciples were saying about the marvelous works of God. That was the reason for the gift. Well, as I said, 10 years ago, as we were talking about Pentecost, we jumped off into 1 Corinthians 12, and we spent several weeks talking about the spiritual gifts. And if you go on our website, you can listen to a series that is called The Spiritual Gifts. Now, to me, standing here right now, that was 10 years ago. But to people who listen to us on the Internet, who dial up the uh, archive section, and they pull up the spiritual gift section, that can be as current as yesterday to them. In fact, I get email frequently from people who say, remember when you said, and they bring up something I said eight years ago or 12 years ago. And the truth is, no, I don't remember what I said. I have to go back and I have to listen. It's always exciting when I listen to one of those older messages and find out that I still agree with me. That's <laughs> it's very exciting. But 10 years ago, we were uh, about a five-year-old church, and I kind of had the position coming out of the church that I did in Los Angeles and coming out of my Lutheran background, I had the position of fairly strict cessationism. Do you know what that means, cessationism? It just means that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. And I was a fairly staunch cessationist. If you go look at our What We Believe section on our website, it does include a statement that says that we don't give way to ecstatic utterances or the things that are commonly called speaking in tongues these days, that we're not a tongue-talking church. And so taking that position as a cessationist, a friend of mine who is still in the room right now, Jeff Young, gave me a book by D.A. Carson. And that book was D.A. Carson working his way through 1 Corinthians 12 because he was challenged by his church. Because he says the same things I say, like, if I can't find it in the Bible, I have no business saying it. And so D.A. Carson was challenged with, show me where in the Bible it says that the spiritual gifts have ceased. I thought, well, that's interesting. It must be in there. After all, I'm a cessationist. So I started reading the book and started looking through what the Bible had to say about it. And that's really where the spiritual gifts message from 10 years ago, that series of messages, that's really where it came from. 
was looking at that book and realizing that I could not say finally, definitely, axiomatically, I could not say that the Bible says the spiritual gifts have ceased. But when I look at what Paul says here in chapter 12, he's very clear about don't abuse the spiritual gifts. Do everything in order. God is not a God of confusion. And that the spiritual gifts are graces from God that are given by God for a specific purpose. And that purpose is for the good and the edification of the body. So most of what we see these days on TV or on the radio that is called charismatic or that is called Pentecostal isn't for the good of the body. It's usually for the good of the person exercising the gift to kind of show off their spiritual one-upmanship. And so for that reason, I took the hard line of, well, that's all a bunch of gibberish and we're not for that. But the reality is the Bible never says that the gifts of God have utterly and completely ceased because among the graces of God that Paul is going to list for us includes the spiritual gift of faith. And we can't say faith has stopped. We can't say that God no longer graciously gives faith to people. I met a fellow a good many years ago who said that he did not believe in speaking in tongues, but that while he was in Mexico, he sat down at a bus stop and suddenly spoke Spanish to a fellow and talked about the glorious works of Christ, and that when he got done, the Spanish guy who spoke no English had understood absolutely everything he had said. And I can't question his experience because that's what Paul says the gift of tongues is for. But whether it's the gift of tongues or whether it's the gift of faith, whether it's another gift that Paul talks about later, gifts of helps or gifts of being able to administer a church body. All of those gifts still exist. We still see them exercised within the church. So I can't say finally and definitely, well, the spiritual gifts have ceased. Otherwise, I would have to find something in the Bible that says that, and I would have to say God is no longer truly gracious because he has stopped the graces that he has given to people. And that's why this word charismata is so important. The understanding that it is the charis, the grace of God, that gives gifts to men for the good of the whole body. If you understand it that way, then it takes it out of the woo-woo-woo category where people are floating four feet off the ground and speaking in gibberish tongues and ecstatic utterances. That's not what Paul was talking about. He's talking about the graces of God that bring good and organization to a church body for the benefit of all the church body the same way that he said now wait on each other and take care of each other so that's my current position that's the position that that I was convinced of 10 years ago and it's still my position and I went back this week and listened to the spiritual gifts series and since that series exists on our website I don't want to just say it all again because you can go back and listen to that. Hopefully I'm bringing something new to the party 10 years later. But the basic facts still exist. Got it? Okay, so now, Paul changing topics a bit. Now concerning the charismata. Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were, the next word in some of your translations will say Gentiles. In the NASB, it says when you were pagans. And that's really what Paul is getting at. You know that when you were here in Corinth without Christ, when you were still sacrificing to and worshiping dumb idols, back when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols. Not dumb like, I don't know anything, but dumb like can't speak in contrast to our God, the God of the Bible, the God of heaven, the real God, the only God that exists, tells us about himself. 
We don't have to discover things about him. He'll tell us what he's like. And our job is to read what he's like and then recognize that that's exactly how he defines himself and bring ourselves into alignment with those facts. Because there are a great many people in the world today who are trying to redefine God after their own imagination, after their own Gnosticism, after their own personal revelation. They say that God must be like this or God must be like that. And I'm quick to ask the question, why must he? And has he ever said that about himself? Because if he hasn't said that about himself, you have no idea if he's like that or not. You're just making stuff up because it works for you. But God speaks and tells us what he's like, what he thinks, what he expects, and what he's actively doing in the world today. And that makes him in huge contrast to all the idols of stone and wood and the crafts of men's hands, these idols that cannot speak. And so because they can't speak, because they can't tell you what they're like, men have to give them attributes. Men have to assign them qualities or characteristics. My idol, my idol that I built, he's like this, and he's about this, and he does this. How do you know that? Well, I just made it up. But Yahweh tells you what he's about and everything you need to know about him. So that's the first thing that Paul wants to draw your attention to, that he's not saying these things arbitrarily. He's not making anything up. He's telling you the things that he has learned from this God. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you. Now, here comes the first gift of the Spirit. And in all my years, uh, I can say this categorically, in all my years, I've never heard a Pentecostal or charismatic Spirit-filled, tongue-talking person ever start here at verse 3. But verse 3 is the first of the charismata, the first of the gifts of the Spirit. And it is, I think, one of the most important because it divides all of humanity into two groups. And only one of those two groups is the saved group. And the other group is the group that says that Jesus is anathema. Verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. You can't say that if you're speaking by the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is in you, if your thoughts if your speech, if your language, if what you're extolling to other people is driven by the Spirit of God, then it is impossible for you to come to the conclusion that Jesus is fit for burning, that he is accursed by God. You can't say that. You can't even think that. In fact, I saw a few of you when I just said that kind of made that face at me like, oh, I don't even like that thought. Because the Spirit of God within you cannot entertain such thoughts. So the first gift of the Spirit is that if you are speaking by the Spirit of God, you cannot say that Jesus is accursed, but also no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you don't have the Spirit of God, you are going to assume that Jesus either doesn't exist or that he was just a good and wise teacher who existed on the stage of history at some point, and he said some clever things, but he's not God. He's not ruling and reigning at the right hand of God in heaven right now. He, he was just another man who lived as an example of a good guy. Or you're going to argue that he's twisted, that he's taken the idea of God from the Old Testament and assigned it to himself and that he's genuinely crazy and he decided that he was the Messiah and that really he should be accursed. 
That's the only way that the human being without the Spirit of God can think about Jesus. They have to put him in some kind of negative category. They cannot say, Jesus is Lord. Now, if you have the Spirit of God, you will readily admit that Jesus is Lord. So let's talk about that for a moment because we live in a society where we have no idea what Lord means. None of us have a Lord over us. The closest we might come is a boss, but our boss pays us. None of us have a Lord. Now, the Greek word is actually kurios. Kurios means absolute master, the one who has the power of life and death, the one who has complete charge over everybody, the one who is, in fact, sovereignly in charge. That's the kurios. So when the Bible began being translated into the English language, when they tried to find a one-for-one English word that would say the same thing as kurios, because you had a culture that was divided into lords and serfs, uh, you've probably watched Downton Abbey. Any Downton Abbey fans in the room? Okay. Well, then you know that there are people who work on land that they don't own. And they farm that land, and whatever animals they raise, whatever grain they raise, some amount of it goes to the landowner. And the landowner usually lived in the big house, and he was in charge, and he had all his servants, and he had everybody working for him because he was the lord of the manor. So he's the one who's in charge. He's the primary guy over all these various people. And so when kurios was being translated into English, there was a lord culture going on in England. And so, of course, the King James translators would go with the word lord because that meant something to them. They understood what that meant. To call somebody lord was to say, you have all the rights over me. You tell me when I can get married. You tell me when it's okay to eat. You eat first and then I eat. You have the right to tell me if I can continue existing on your land. You can send me away. You can tell me what house to live in. You, you had complete control over the whole manor. And so they translated Kurios as Lord. Now we today, living in America in the 21st century, we've heard the word Lord so often that we just think it means, I love you, Lord. You're my body, Lord. You're my co-pilot, Lord. You're my, we use the word Lord uh, haphazardly. We use the word Lord to say, well, Jesus is my friend, and he's my buddy, and he's my compatriot, and he's my best friend, and we hang around together, and I sing songs where Jesus is my boyfriend, and, and Jesus is just kind of a good guy, and then we say, and I've made him Lord. And if you can make him Lord, then he's not Lord. That's right. He is already kurios. He is already master. It is God's intention that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is kurios. That's God's intention for his son. And so when we say the word Lord... We have this ability to kind of dumb it down when, in fact, it is a very high word. It is a word that means master over your life. Now, I have often made the joke. In fact, I, I joked last week that the nurse at the uh, Surgia Center, that's a word now, Surgia Center, that's what it's called, the Surgia Center. They took the word surgery and center, and they put it together. It's a Surgia Center. And so I asked them if they had a wheelchair. And so it was short for wheelchair. They didn't, they didn't get it either. Um, I just started shortening words while I was there. I just thought it was funny. While I was at the surgery center, remember there was a, a nurse checking me in. I mentioned this last week, who said to me, do you consider yourself a white male um, Caucasian. 
do you consider yourself a white male Caucasian? And I said, no, I consider myself a six foot seven black basketball player. <laughs> and, and so why is that funny? Why is it funny that I would consider myself something that I'm plainly and obviously not? Well, the reason the joke works is because everybody who looks at me, little five foot six bald guy, knows that I'm not six seven. And so the fact that I consider myself something is undermined by the fact that everybody looking at the evidence can tell that I'm not that. I used to jokingly say, I'm Chinese. And people would say, no, you can't be Chinese. And I would say, why not? And they would say, you don't have the characteristics. Okay, so that being a fact, and a fact that we all get, we all understand that fact. Jim's a five foot six bald white guy. That's all he's ever going to be. That's what Jim is. So it's a joke when Jim says that he's Chinese or that he's black or that he's anything else. That's a joke. Now, we have people walking around on the planet right now saying, I'm a Christian. And I say, do you have the qualifications of Christianity? Do you have the characteristics? Could somebody look at you and know you are a Christian because you walk like one and talk like one and act like one and your behavior comports to the fact that you say you're a Christian because one of the primary qualifications of being a Christian is that Jesus is your kurios. Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is in charge. And if you don't believe that, if you don't think that, if you think that you can create some subcategory of theology whereby your particular rebellion is embraced by Christianity, there's no such thing as a Christian adulterer. That doesn't exist. There are Christians who commit adultery, but then they repent of it and they return back to the kurios in repentance, and the kurios forgives them. But if somebody was to say, well, the kind of Christianity I believe in embraces my adulteries, and so I'm an, an adulterous Christian, we would say, no, that's not the way Christianity works, because what you've done is you've removed the kurios from your relationship and definition of what Christianity is. You have said that the kurios no longer matters. What he says, what he commands, what he expects doesn't matter. And whatever serves your flesh the most is what you have embraced. And then you've tried to redefine Christianity and the kurios according to your particular rebellion. You understand me? Because there are people at this very moment who are out there saying, well, I've looked into it, and I've decided that Christianity is not opposed to my particular sin. And that's permeating the church world. Christianity is being dumbed down. All kinds of things that the Bible says are an abomination, are things that the church world is embracing and saying, well, that was an abomination in the Old Testament, but God has changed, and, and the kurios is not really Lord. He's not really in charge of my life. In fact, I can redefine my relationship with the kurios by simply saying that the kurios no longer thinks that this particular sin is a problem anymore. And that's why we have gay clergy in the church. That's why we have, sorry women, I love you women, but that's why we have women preaching in the church. That's why we have so many things going on in the church that are strictly prohibited in the Bible because people are no longer thinking of Jesus as kurios. They are thinking of him as a good suggestion. And then they're adding their preferences. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Because if you have the spirit of God, if you say, I'm a Christian, well, then you're a Christian because the Spirit of God resides in you. And if you have the Spirit of God inside you, you will admit that Jesus is Lord of your life. Absolute Lord, not tangential Lord. 
not somebody you can negotiate with. There is also a movement within the church that says, well, you know, Jesus died and he covered all our sins. And since we're going to be forgiven anyway, then it really doesn't matter if I sin because Jesus, my Lord, is going to forgive me. So even if I sin, it's no big deal. And so Paul addresses that. Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? And his answer is, no way. His answer is, God forbid. No, that's not what it's about. You've been forgiven of your sin, but you've also been given a new nature by the Spirit of God inside you so that you can no longer do the things that you used to do. And so some of you used to be all kinds of darkness. You used to follow after the course of this world. You used to follow the prince of this world and, and the spirit of darkness that has overtaken this world. But that's what you used to be. And now you are washed and now you are redeemed and now you are blood bought and now you do have a kurios, a Lord. And you are either, I'll say this as plainly as I can, you are either somebody who says they are a servant, a slave to Jesus Christ and that he is your master utterly and completely or you're kidding yourself. Those are the two categories. So as far as the world goes, there are people who do not have the spirit of God. And to them, they're perfectly willing to say that Jesus is accursed. But to the ones who have the spirit of God, they have the spiritual gift of understanding who Christ is and following hard after him as Lord of your life. See the difference? Okay. I know I sound like an old-time tent revival fire-breathing preacher right now. But it's what Paul is saying, and it's the truth. The only reason that what I'm saying sounds foreign is because it's not being said in the church anymore. And if we use this standard, if this becomes the standard for Christianity... That if you are indeed Christian, you will follow hard after your Lord, after your kurios. If that becomes the standard, churches are going to be emptied real quickly. Because there are far too many man-pleasing churches who have fallen into line with the traditions that make men feel good about themselves. And the Bible isn't about making you feel good about you. The Bible is about you recognizing who your kurios is, who the God of heaven is, who has revealed himself to you, and you recognizing that you as a human being, as a fallen sinful person, you desperately need that kurios. And if you know that about yourself, then you're not willing to take the attitude of, well, he's forgiven me, so it doesn't matter what I do. Instead, you want to please him because he's Lord. And one of two things is going to happen when you take that attitude. Either you're going to find out that he is Lord, that he is master, that he is kurios, and he's going to correct you, and he's going to do it the hard way to bring you back into the fold. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son he receives. He's either going to correct you because you do belong to him, or he's going to let you go. Because you never did belong to him. And I see way too much going on in the church world these days. In what is called Christendom. In what is called evangelicalism these days. There is way too much that falls into the you don't have the characteristics category. Understand that if you belong to him. You belong to him because he bought you. The reason that I don't want anybody to steal my car, well, my car's quite old now. It's a 2002. If you stole it, you can have it. But, <clears throat> but the reason I don't want anybody to steal my car is because it belongs to me. And you know how I know it belongs to me? I bought it. I paid a bunch of money for that thing. And therefore, because I bought it, I paid the price for it, it belongs to me. So don't you mess with it. Well, same thing with Jesus. He bought you with a very high price. 
Peter argues, you're bought with a price. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. And if you belong to him, he can do whatever he wants with you. Because you're his. You're his possession, and therefore, he can do whatever he wants with you. And that's what it is to be kurios. That's what it is to be Lord. That's what it is to be Savior. That's what it is to be Redeemer, the one who purchases. And the price that he paid to buy you was the very high price of his own life and his own blood and the wrath of God so that you're not appointed to wrath. Now, that's a really high price to pay. And do you think he's going to pay that high a price for you and then lose you? No, he's going to pay that high a price for you and you're going to belong to him and he's going to correct you and he's going to bring you back to himself and he's not going to let you live in that kind of sinful, rebellious debauchery. He's not going to let that continue. But if he does let it continue, it's because... Like John said, they went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us because they were never of us. So one of two things here. Either he's absolute curios, or you don't have the characteristics of Christianity. You got it? Yes. Do you got it? Yes. Okay. Does anybody want to run screaming for the door at this moment? Because I know it's a hard message, but it's the right message. It's the missing message in so many churches and so much of evangelicalism. We have forgotten who Jesus is. We think of him just as my buddy, pal, co-pilot, boyfriend, and we forget what he is. He's curios. And that's what Paul wants people to admit. And if that's true, if you admit that he's curious, he's absolute Lord, he's in complete control, well, then be good to each other for his sake. That's going to be Paul's argument. Yeah, your hand up. It's real easy in, in speed reading through this or in trying to recall it six months from now. But the three words, is the Lord, is, is really key here. Because if you try to recall it six months from now, it's really easy to say, oh, I remember that. It says... No man can say, I believe in Jesus, unless by the Holy Ghost. And that's not what it says. Right. Because you can believe in Jesus, demons believe in Jesus, but they, uh, Jesus is the Lord. Yeah. And that's a key part in, the, in understanding that verse. When he walked and talked on the planet, the people who nailed him to the cross, the Romans, the Gentiles, the Jews that were against him, do they think they knew who not who he was intimately, but who he was as a person. Do you think they knew Jesus? Sure. That's how they knew which guy to nail to the cross. They knew who he was. They knew Jesus. The carpenter's son. The carpenter's son. But would they admit that he was Lord? Never. And if they did, they would never have nailed him to the cross. In his absolute lordship, in his absolute authority, in his complete sovereignty, he made sure that they didn't know who he was so that they would kill him so that he would be lord. And that's the God we serve. That's a God who's a whole lot smarter than I am. It's a God who's a whole lot more powerful and ever living than I am. And that's a God who is, that's a lord who has taken me through things that I couldn't get through otherwise. I know I'm kind of camping here, but I like it here. <laughs> Michael. I just have a couple of quick things, too. I was thinking, I mean, Jesus actually addresses this very thing because he says, Why callest thou me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things... But don't do the things I've said. Yeah. And then also, I think the most horrifying verse in all the scripture, many in that day will say to me, you know, Lord, Lord, and we know the rest. And I'll say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart yeah. from me. He says, you workers of iniquity. Yeah. So he focuses on their sin, how they work, just like what you're saying. Yeah. I'm not making things up up here. <laughs> yes, Linda. In our kind of our tolerant and libertine society. Yes. Libertine, good word. Thank you for yanking that out this morning. The concept of obedience, you know, that has really been totally lost. I mean, nobody, you know, our flesh, nobody likes to obey anybody. I mean, that's the way we are. We're rebels. But that whole concept of if you love God, you will obey him. 
you know, and obedience is no longer a, a virtue. Which is a complete negation of biblical Christianity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we see it everywhere, don't we? I mean, that was kind of easy to come up with because we see it everywhere in the church. Yes, Leon. Nice beard, by the way. Go ahead. Um, it also puts today for us when so many things that are so important to us in our lives, the state, and the state wants to be the curios, the state wants to be God, the state is taking so much power into itself, creates a conflict and a lot of pressure um, that I don't know is, is easily recognizable today as it was back then, um, where it was, you know, you follow the state and you follow Christ who died. Um, but that same pressure still exists today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a lot of things that are pulling at us to be master over us. And if you say you're Christian, then you're saying, I have one master. All the other things that are trying to achieve mastery over me are secondary, but he's primary. And that's just not the way that Christianity's taught anymore. And I do think, like you were alluding to, I do think a certain amount of that is societal, is the fact that we live in a free country where we freely do what we want to do. We have complete autonomy, we think. And so in a society that it was more like a two-tiered society where there was just an upper class and a lower class like there was in Rome when Paul was walking around saying these things, those people really understood what it was to say, this is somebody who has authority over you. But no longer do we speak of Jesus as the one who's in authority, as the one who's genuinely in charge. We like the idea that he is a spiritual authority during times that I need him. When I'm sick, when I need to be forgiven, when I feel lonely, then I want me some Jesus. And as long as he's around, that's good for me. But as far as the Lord of my life, the one who is in charge of everything, and that even when I get sick, he was the Lord of that. And that even when I have nothing, and my life is falling apart. He's in charge of that. And even when I'm recovered from that, he's in charge of that. And the day I'm born and the day I pull my last breath, he's in charge of that. That's genuine curios. And when I want to go out and do something that the Bible plainly says don't do, like the Bible says be not drunk with wine. So, okay, I want to go out tonight and I want to get drunk. But if I understand he is my curios, then he will strengthen me to not go do that. And it will be my desire to not do that because I don't want to offend the curios. Not just because I love the curios, but because I know he'll correct me. And no correction, as the writer of Hebrews plainly says, no scourging's pleasant for the time being. And I've been through plenty of scourging in my life. And let's be honest, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of beating my head against the wall of his absolute sovereignty. Instead, I admit to his authority and conform my behavior to his authority, and my life just goes better. All right. That'll teach you to take me down that road. (laughs) Nice beard, though. So... Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Nobody can fake it. There were, and still are. In John's day, there were. That's why he said, they went out from us. Or like Michael said, there are people who will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. There are people to this very day who see Christianity as attractive for some reason, especially when they hear, come to Jesus and you'll get a new house and a new car and you'll never be sick and your kids will be smarter and you'll run faster and jump higher and it's 
you know, it's just come to Jesus and everything's going to go fine in your life. Well, then there are going to be what we commonly call nominal Christians. There are going to be people who say, hey, that Christian thing sounds like a good deal. Oh, my friend invited me to church. I got a free T-shirt. I think I'll go back next week. They've been converted to a false Jesus. They've been converted to a Jesus who is just there to serve them. That existed in John's day. It existed in Paul's day. It existed in Jesus' day. It exists to this very day. There are always going to be people who have joined the company of the church, the assembly of the church, who have not truly come to the conclusion that Jesus is absolute and complete Lord. And once you say to them, he's the Lord of your life and you got to stop that, whatever the that is, whatever your rebellion is, Whatever your sin is, you got to quit that. Well, if they belong to Christ, they'll quit it. But if they don't belong to Christ and they're a nominal Christian and they just like what the church can do for them, they're going to quit the church. And they're going to go find some other assembly that will let them continue to get away with it. And there are plenty of those. All you got to do is go up the road. And there are plenty of places you can find where nobody's going to call you into account and nobody's going to say, live like you mean it. And nobody's going to say, Jesus is Lord. But if you have the Spirit of God, you will say, Jesus is Lord. And the only way you can say that is by the Holy Spirit. So that is the first gift of the Spirit. And you have to start there. If you don't start there, none of the rest of it counts. Well, what does it matter if you babble in gibberish? Big deal. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? That's where it starts. All right, moving on. We're all the way to verse 4. Now, Paul's going to describe the way this works, the way these gifts work. There are varieties of gifts, but it's the same spirit. So what he's getting at is, even though he's going to provide a list of different gifts of the spirit, the uh, charismata, even though he's going to list them, he wants you to know that they all come from the self-same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God distributes the gifts. Verse 5, and there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. Okay, Jesus is the same Lord, so now he's brought the second person of the Godhead into his description of the charismata. And he has said it is the Spirit of God that, that has the variety of gifts, but then there's a variety of the ministering of those gifts. Each individual gift is meant to serve the body and will serve different ways. And then verse 6, and varieties of effects. So, okay, so there's these different gifts. He's going to list the gifts for us. But the way that the gift ministers to the body depends on the Lord over the body and the effect that that gift has on the body is determined by God. So you've got Father, Son, and Spirit. You've got the triunity here. You've got a variety of gifts. You've got a variety of ministries and you've got a variety of effects. But the same God who works all things in all persons. So this is God's enterprise, giving gifts of grace to men through the Holy Spirit who provides or distributes the variety of gifts. And those gifts minister to different people different ways, but it is Jesus who is in charge of how it's going to affect people. So knowing all of that, can I say you're not a real Christian unless you have one of these gifts particularly this one. This is my favorite one, speaking in tongues. I'm a Pentecostal now. I'm going to say you can't really be a Christian. You don't have the infilling of the Holy Spirit unless you're speaking in tongues. So stay here until you start babbling in tongues because that is the sure and certain proof of your Christianity. Can I get away with that according to Paul? No, because he said there's different gifts, different effects. There's different ministries of those gifts. And in a little while, Paul's going to say, does everybody prophesy? It's a rhetorical question. It assumes the answer. The answer is no. 
And then he's going to say, do all speak in tongues? And the answer is no. Well, wait a minute. The Pentecostals told me I have to. How come Paul tells me not everybody does? Because the gifts, the charismata that are given to the church are given to the church for the good of the whole body. And they are distributed by the Holy Spirit. They are ministered to the body by Jesus Christ. And the effect that it has on the church is up to God. And none of it is up to you. And none of it's up to the preacher. And none of it's up to any denomination or tradition because it's not up to you whether or not you have them. It's up to God. Do you get that? Yes. Am I alone up here? Okay. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. They get that charismata. They get that gift of the Spirit. For what purpose? For the common good. That's the reason for the charismata. The charismata do not exist to lift any person up. Here, I can think of an example. Hang on just a Excuse me while I spray. The back of my throat's burning. You can turn on the TV to, I don't want to name names, but their initials are TBN. <laughs> you can turn to TBN any time of day and you'll see somebody showing off their tongues you'll see somebody calling out healings you'll see somebody showing that they are just spiritually superior to you many of them have a dvd set for sale where if you buy it from them and make them richer if you buy it from them they will show you how you can be as spiritual as they are None of that comports with what Paul just said. The whole purpose of the charismata, the whole purpose for the gifts is for the good of the whole body, for the common good. Never are any of these gifts for the purpose of showing off. Never. Look, if anybody could show off, we won't get to it this morning. We won't get to half of what I wanted to get to this morning, but... Paul's going to say, I speak in tongues. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Why did he have to tell them that? Because they hadn't seen it. He spoke in tongues when he was in an area where speaking in tongues was for the common good. Because if you traveled 50 miles in the Middle East, you were in a different dialect. You're in a different language. And so the gift of different languages made sense that God would graciously give the gift of suddenly speaking a language that you don't normally speak. And that's the word that Paul uses over and over, the word glossa, translated tongue. And it does mean the physical tongue in your physical mouth that I just sprayed with chloroseptic. It does mean that, but it also is the common word for language. The English phrase speaking in tongues is the single compound Greek word glossolalia, which simply means tongues or language, and the word lelio, the, the word for speaking. And so while that sounds very spiritual to say, I have the gift of the glossolalia, what it really means is I speak a known language that exists on planet Earth as a gift from God I might speak it to someone who doesn't speak my language and I don't speak theirs and through the grace of God I will teach them Christ or extol the glories of God for the common good. That's what the gift of tongues is. And so if you turn on the TV and you see somebody up there ecstatically uttering or babbling or they all sound like they're saying get off of my Honda. I don't know why, but they <clears throat> think about it. If you say it quickly enough, you can, you can convince it. Get off of my Honda, especially if your Honda has Bondo on it. 
And then you put that together, get off of my Honda, oh, Bondo. You know, I mean, it's just, it's meaningless. It means nothing. It's showing off. It's, it's claiming that you're more spiritual than everybody. But in a minute, Paul is also going to say, in a minute, we'll get to it next week. But Paul is also going to say, if you're speaking in tongues, make sure it's only by two or three at the most. And only if there's an interpreter. Only if there's somebody there who has the charismata of interpreting tongues. Because it's for the common good. And if I stand up here and suddenly, for no reason, just start speaking Swahili, there's nobody in this room that's going to be edified. You're not a gonna. You're not a gonna. I'm speaking in tongues. <laughs> if, if, if I'm speaking a language you don't speak, you're not going to be edified by the things I've said. Even if I'm talking about Christ, even if I'm talking about God, even if I'm telling you about the glories of heaven, you're not going to understand it. So Paul's going to conclude the purpose of the tongue is for the edification and the common good of the whole body. Yes, Don. Um, some people say, I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. <laughs> I, should, I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. Yeah, I like that. Practice it at home. It'll make you very spiritual. There's varieties of gifts. It's the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works in all persons, works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Okay, within the body, because this is for the common good, within the body, each gift that is given Each of the charismata that is given to anybody is given for the purpose of the good of the whole body. So you can check it that way. You can say, does this, this thing that this person is saying is a spiritual gift from God, does this thing edify the body or is it lifting up the person? And that's the real test of whether it's the genuine charismata or whether it's somebody making stuff up. To each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit. And to another of the word of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another person they're given faith by that same spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one spirit. And to another the effecting of miracles. And to another prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. Notice how low on the list tongues was there. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But the one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each person individually just as he wills. The Holy Spirit wills these gifts determines these gifts, distributes these gifts for the common good, and it's never up to the charismatic. It's never up to the operator to decide that they're going to have any of these gifts. It's all, once again, up to God, which fits very nicely with what we believe here. We believe God is sovereign. And if he's, in fact, sovereign, then it would be up to him. And that's exactly what Paul said. It's up to him. So if you don't have one of these gifts, any of these gifts, if you don't believe that you have anything that you can say, I know, I know what my gift is. My gift is this, which, by the way, I believe that everybody who has the Holy Spirit has a gifting. You may not readily know what yours is, but I guarantee you everybody around you knows what yours is. And so I believe that everybody who has the Holy Spirit has the the charismata. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to men. And this, by the way, that list that we just looked at that we're going to go into in more detail next week because I'm tired of talking and my throat hurts. And so next week we're going to go through this list, but that's not even the complete list. Paul lists two other lists in two other books that include other gifts that God has given graciously to men for the edification of his body of the church but it's the one and the same spirit that works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills and then from there he's going to say because even as the body is one 
and yet has many members. And all of the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is the body of Christ. So the purpose of him bringing up this whole treatise on spiritual gifts, on the charismata, is to say that the charismata exists to bring unity to the church. Which is right on the heels of him saying, you know, when you're doing the Lord's Supper, you're doing it wrong because you're not taking care of each other. And now he's going to talk about the body and how I have an ear and a hand and a foot, but it's all one body. Same thing in the church. And if that's true of the church, then, then you ought to wait on each other. You ought to care for one another. Okay, so next week we'll look at that list of gifts and we'll talk about what each of those gifts are. At least what we think they are. You can read lots of different commentaries that have lots of different opinions about how these gifts manifest, but we'll talk about the most common understanding of them. I'm done. Any questions about that? We're good? We got all our questions out of the way as we went through it? Good, I'm glad. It's only 12 o'clock now, so I went sort of semi-easy on you. All right, well, if you have no questions, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.